Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Little addition to this interview, since it was recorded, me and Alan were chuckling the other day because it shows that it's taken us a little while to get out. Dan Matthews, animal rights icon, as he was called in the article that announced it, has actually left his job at Peter. He has actually ended such an iconic tenure there. One of the articles that announced it saying he is leaving the organisation he helped put on the map and make the largest animal rights group on the planet. So this is in fact his last, probably his last interview as a member of Peter. It's actually an extra special chat now. Can't wait for you to hear it. Have a listen. Hello. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Alan. Can I welcome, can I usher you into the uh, velveteen halls of Homo sapiens? <laughs> that sounds dirty. It does, doesn't it? Do you remember, um, sort of... remember Sheena Easton did a duet with Prince? I mean, talk about right. And her, her song was called Come Inside My Sugar Walls. Seriously. It was, was called, it? <laughs> yes. It's not exactly that veiled, that uh, sexual analogy, no. is it? No. Do you know what, listeners, what I also want to share with you is that every time before we record these little intros and Alan picks up his phone and a little show tune starts to play. (laughs) It's so embarrassing because, well, it's it's often it's worse when it's like a a YouTube clip of the guest we're about to do. Oh, yeah. Because I I have it because when I put the my phone on top of my computer right now for these little pre chats, Sometimes yeah. presses a button and it makes a video start that I've just been watching. And I'm just paranoid <laughs> that sometimes we're going to be in the middle of an interview with someone and, and they'll hear their own voice in the previous interview that I've been watching. To, oh. But but there's a boy called Seth Sykes who does these funny videos, singing videos on Fire Island. And someone, uh, Daniel, my partner at Club Coming, sent me the latest one. And it's been going on and off all morning. Against mm. my will, I have to say. I want to, like, I've been... You're reminding me of, like... There's my friend's um, my friend's dad is on Facebook and we're friends on Facebook and he obviously searches for people on that he like you know went to school with or whatever but yeah. he he thinks he's searching in the search box but he's not he's putting it as his status <laughs> so it'll just be like Janet Wallybottom <laughs> and, and then next one is like Paul. Hilarious. Like, someone needs to tell him that he's updating be like, his status. That would be like me if I went on Facebook. You know, I've never been on Facebook. And I when I see it and somebody's got it open on their computer or stuff, I'm like fast, like a child who doesn't get to have sweets. And yes. uh, I would be terrible at it because I'm so, you know, 
it's it's so ingrained in everyone's day to day life, and I've just never ever ever done it. Mm. Um, Alan, today we are talking to a great mate of yours, aren't we? Yes, the lovely Dan Matthews, who who is a bigwig. Can't remember his official title at PETA, which is the uh, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and that's how I met him. I met him through my animal activism work. Anyway, uh, mm. yeah, I've, I've, I I love Dan, and I've you know done a few campaigns for PETA and he's just a really fascinating person because he's you know um you know grew up in California a queer kid I, I love this story he worked in his dad's diner and he and he was vegetarian then he was always vegan now but he, he would always try and make people not have like the sausage he was he could say, if we have a full breakfast please he goes oh, don't have the sausage he would try and <laughs> oh funny pretending it's rubbish yes he try and vegetarianize the 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 punters and then he and then he kind of went you know grew up and had this really fascinating sort of time in italy as a student and sort of part-time model part-time gigolo and uh, then very soon after that joined peter and has been with peter for absolutely eons and has done these i mean has basically been a very major part of a complete change in how we think about animal rights and about wearing fur and all these things. And he's done some really mm. intense, crazy things to, to protest. Yeah, because if, if I'm right, he is the man responsible for what we know of how Peter protests, right? The yeah. way that people run onto catwalks and, yeah. or, you know... Um, approach lady gaga and do stuff with her yeah. like it's very very shock tactics that yes always get in the papers and he's really inventive and it's lovely to i really want to ask him about like how he comes up with his ideas for yeah doing those things because it, he's kind of like the king of viral you know things going yes, viral. totally long before it all was that i mean he's and he's also obviously pissed off a lot of people because of that i mean there that's also you know peter is has made a lot of enemies but it's yeah. also i mean that's what you have to do if you want to get a message across and if you want to like mm. change the world and if you want to help and i mean i think it's you know it's it's incredible like so many things he just sent me a thing earlier today actually about something that's happened uh exciting when he said uh oh yeah that tommy hilfiger the design he works a lot with the fashion people because you know that's a lot of the way that you have to kind of mm. you know a lot of those people used fur and leather yes. and things so tommy hilfiger helped peter convince his and calvin klein's parent company to ban the use of all exotic animal skins isn't that great he said that we shared with them mounting reports how the trade in wildlife poses the same pandemic risks as live animal meat markets like the one that spawned covid uh, mm. Next week, we'll be engaging many other fashion houses using this new strategy. Isn't that great? Because, like, you know, he they sent me early on in COVID. They sent me a mask that said, "But you know, uh, meat markets cause oh, you know, disease. That. yeah, that one I was wearing." And so it's true. Like, it's it's. I think the world is actually realizing how much damage mm. uh, the meat industry, the dairy industry, actually does to our planet. Aside from the you know cruelty to animals angle, it's uh, the mass. Yeah, the mass production. Uh, of animals in spaces they're not meant to be in in such huge numbers is, yes and all the um, terrible drugs they put in them and just and just the pain that those poor mm. things go through and so it's been a, it's, yes. he's really fascinating he's really hilarious and he's really naughty so it should be a good laugh let's go talk to Dan Dan Matthews ladies and gentlemen Dan Matthews <laughs> I have a different kind of hue, depending on, right now it's an overcast day, I'm right on the Elizabeth River. Sometimes when the sun's going down, it makes it look like I am 
burgundy. And then other times when the sun is like at a different, I just have this glamorous glow. <laughs> I love that. Where is the Elizabeth River? It is right, I'm right in Norfolk. So um, Virginia. It's halfway down the East Coast. If you, uh, you know that little point where it's right the middle of the East Coast, the hurricanes go up and off of it. Uh, I'm right there, right in the center of the East Coast, dead center. And so, but you mean the hurricanes don't get you? They normally take a left turn and go away? They, yeah, they normally go off the coast, but we do get them right once in a turn. while. And I, I know I do love them. I'm a huge extreme weather freak. Are you? We heard the tornado, tornado sirens last month, and Jack and I at one in the morning went out chasing all around the neighborhood to see if we could... S- Spot any funnel clouds and, you know. Are you like um, Helen Hunt in that film? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the reason you're in Portsmouth is because that's where it's nearby PETA's headquarters. So that's how you ended up there. So when did you join PETA? It was a very long time ago, wasn't it? Yes, I actually just this July uh, passed my 35th year. Oh, congratulations. 35th anniversary. It's crazy. I know. I was 20 years old, fresh out of college when I started, but I'd already been an activist since I was a preteen. Um, and so it's just my life's work. And I never knew that you could grow up and become an animal rights activist because PETA wasn't a group <laughs> when I first became an animal uh, activist. And it was interesting because at that time in the early 80s, uh, in the States at least, uh, there was an anti-hunting group. There was a vegetarian group. They had potlucks. There was a group against animal experimentation. But there wasn't an umbrella organization that just put it all together Um and PETA came along and was that. And so when I was in college, I went to college in Washington, D.C. Uh, at American University. PETA had just started only a few miles away. So I would go there to get literature for my student animal rights group. Uh, we did things like we stopped the university from poisoning pigeons on campus uh, and instead installing uh, invisible netting where they didn't want them to be, uh, things like that. Uh, and uh, when I graduated in June of 85, Ingrid Newkirk said, uh, what are your plans? And I was like, Ingrid's the, Ingrid's the inventor of Peter. Yes. Yeah, she's the founder. And I said, I don't know. I, and she said, well, will you please just come and be uh, join us right away? So I started as Peter's receptionist. And this was back because uh, I could answer the phone, but also answer whatever question they had. Right. Uh, and if people wrote a letter in the mail, this is before emails or faxes, I could respond to the letter. And so I had my little typewriter with a lazy T and I would you know, answer everybody's questions. And I was, uh, so I was the receptionist, but also the info person. And because I answered the phone, I started talking to activists around the country. Um, uh-huh. And uh, so I started, you know, working with activists. And one of our members uh, in New York worked for Warner Brothers Records. And she said, you know, there's a, the B-52s and the Smiths and pretenders are all, you know, vegetarian. You should come and, and meet with them. And I had no contacts. Um, so she would have me meet her for lunch when she knew the B-52s were going to be in the office. That's how I met Kate Pearson. Ah. So a lot of the early, you know, Peter's known for having all these um, celebrities like Alan Cumming nowadays. But it started with a bunch of punk rockers. It was mostly punks. I <laughs> and um, <laughs> oh, I love him. when I started uh, full time in 1985, I thought, OK, this is great. We're kind of like animal rights was associated with with grannies kind mm. of uh, and or hippies. And I thought I wanted to be a a youth movement and have all these cool 80s artists in it. And so um, uh, I got to know Morrissey when he came to Washington on the Meet His Murder tour with the Smiths. Um, and he became involved and he's still involved. Um, but then I wanted comics too, because I wanted it to be a little, uh, to be more funny and not so, uh, you know, uh, strident all the time. 
So when the Golden Girls started uh, 35 years ago this month, I thought, I want Rue McClanahan. She has to be involved with PETA. We need the slut. We need the, she will, you know, give it a whole different spin. And so I wrote we a letter. Need the slut. I'm sure she enjoyed that. <laughs> I bet she did, actually. I wrote her a letter, care of NBC. I didn't have any really? connections with publicists. And um, I asked her if she would host a PETA party at Chippendales, the male strip club. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> I thought no one's going to ask her that. And I actually got a response from her assistant, Chris, saying, Rue loves this idea. And she loves animals. Everyone thinks of Betty White as the big animal lover. But Rue is, you know, she is all for it, all with you. Uh, when can you come out and meet her? I was 20-year-old gay at the time. and um, Freaking out, I imagine. I did freak out. I did freak out. Yeah. And we ended up traveling all over together doing PETA things. She became our first real champion. There was floods in, in Missouri. We went there to uh, urge people not to abandon their animals. And, and we created an ad- adoption program when there was a big fur convention in Las Vegas in 1988, she came to lead the anti-fur convention so that activists would come out in droves to fight the fur trade. And that was their last fur convention. Mm. Um, wow. uh, the Golden Girls did one of PETA's first TV commercials. It was great. And just, you know, you wouldn't think it could be that easy, but it was. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, it seems easy now. Now it's much more difficult to get through all the ways of people. And um, Oh, is it? Oh, that's interesting. It's much harder to get to get to celebrities now. I think because of social media, it used to be that we were the way that if you were famous, you could speak up for animals. PETA would come up with a campaign for you. Now, everybody is so afraid of ruffling somebody's feathers, so to speak, um, that they will post their own thing on their own social media, but not be involved with any group. Mm. That's the way um, it is a lot of people now. it's almost like people, it's almost like self-activism then. It's sort of almost in a way of social media has created, if you've access to all those people, you can just do it yourself. Or you think it's think, more about not wanting to ruffle feathers. I think it's not like, for instance, if they're in a show, I mean, they would be afraid to speak out. We've, we've One of PETA's biggest um, impacts have been uh, in uh, doing away with cosmetics testing on animals. It's not all together done yet, but we pressured Colgate, Palmolive, uh, Maybelline, you you name it. Uh, it was pretty much a done deal until they opened up markets in China and started testing again for the Chinese market. But we're, we're hot on that and changing those regulations too. But a lot of um, uh, uh, TV stars, for instance, would be afraid to be involved with us because one of their sponsors of their TV show was a target and their managers would warn them off. So now it's kind of really cool. The people that we do get who support us now, people like Bill Maher and Pink, um, they are kind of like the punk attitude of nowadays. Right. And right. so it's, it's kind of great. It's kind of awesome. And we, and we do, you know, we have, a, we have a, a lot of support, but I just want to you know, say it's not as easy as it might seem. Um, it's it, is uh, it easier but we, to, but on the other hand, is it easier because of social media to rally the masses uh, because it's such a quick way to find your tribe on Instagram and all of those places. So it, it is. It is. But I find that, you know, like a lot of animal people are friends with animal people. And if somebody, they, a relative of theirs posts a picture of a turkey at a Thanksgiving dinner, they will block that person. I'm the opposite. I'm friends with hunters. I'm friends with, if, if it's somebody that I meet here or there, you know, and I actually have, believe it or not, a friend who works on this quite tall wooden ship over there in the harbor is a hunter. Mm. And um, he doesn't hunt all the time, but he grew up hunting in Oregon. 
And he actually came to our vegan Thanksgiving after hunting one morning. He didn't tell me about it until months later, but he, he said, uh, you know, and he posts about vegan stuff now all the time. That's who I want. I want the people right, who are yes, on the other yes. side. What's your tactic, though? Is your what's your you know what are your steps if there are specifics? Because uses his manly whales. <laughs> <laughs> Come to the disco room. What's it called? The the record room. Yeah. But but how do you you know how do you get someone on side? Because I think it's such an important thing to learn. He is just some you know uh, Portsmouth is a, like a village, and uh, Old Town Portsmouth has the widest. A uh, variety of architecture of any city on the East Coast between uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and Alexandria, Virginia, because uh, Norfolk was blown away during the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. Portsmouth wasn't. We have all these existing houses, mm. and so they're quite. A lot of them are quite dilapidated now. So it's the it's the town you go to when you want to live on the wrong side of the river and have a like. We have this fabulous 1870 house that we've kind of redone but it's still very creaky and and um you know so it's uh, the the edgy people who aren't the the yuppies and who aren't students uh and who just live on the wrong side of the river that's where we are and so we just get a, a wider combination of people it's a lot more southern down there it's we do call it that side of the river and it becomes a different thing and in that town we have probably a dozen bars an old deco movie theater lots of restaurants cool harborside things and you really do, it's it, it, unlike in a lot of other towns, you hang out there and people talk mm-hmm. to you and you're sitting, at, I mean, right now you can't sit at bars with people, but uh, during, during lockdown, we would be going down the street and it would be somebody that we had seen, but we didn't really know their name and they'd be hollering from their porch. Hey, we, you know, the bars are closed, but you know, there's only four of us up here on the porch. Why don't we uh, have a, a porch party? And that turned into somebody's backyard party and so even during lockdown our little magical freaky village became this quite a social hub people were so you know we're social distancing anyways because it's not that that jammed with people but people are just really friendly nobody asks you what you do um they mm-hmm. they kind of all know i work at PETA, of course uh, after they you know over the over the years but um yeah, but we, you started saying, Dan, that it's sort of the eclecticism of the of the area means that you come into contact with many people from different that you probably wouldn't uh, walks of life that you wouldn't come into contact with otherwise. Exactly. And that's helped you because what you're talking about as well, I think is really interesting. It's kind of about the argument against cancel culture, this relatively new phenomenon of like blocking people, you know, like when there's someone that, and I'm I'm actually all. I mean, I think you have to do it sometimes, but I'm actually all for your attitude of you need to be able, you, the, the people you need to reach, you know, it's not, I feel a bit like that right now. Like I feel like with my followers on Instagram and stuff, like, you know, I think mostly they, I'm preaching to the choir when I put up political stuff and all that, you know, I, 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 and actually I'm always more fascinated about when people are angry with me about something i think gosh you followed me all this time and you didn't realize or you know have you not been angry before but also those are the people that you need to get to to share your ideas and to change your minds and by pushing them away i think that's the thing like in in, especially in american united states of american culture and actually more so in britain now chris Mm -hmm. i think this sort of binariness this polarity, polarity like just there's two teams and you just you're on our side or you're on mm. the other and that's this 
cancel culture just means we're never going to have a chance of someone stepping over the aisle or meeting in the mm. middle. And I think it's I think I think it's healthy what you're saying. It really, even though people have differences, you've got to actually try and find a way. Unless they're, you know, white supremacists, of course. We had a really interesting opportunity. A thing happened to us this summer, which um, was really, really meaningful. Um, uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, is where George Floyd was born. And so they had uh, his first funeral was in Minneapolis. The second funeral was in Fayetteville, where he was born. And he was buried finally in Houston. And Jack and I thought, we have to drive down to Fayetteville to attend his funeral. It's so... We know that there would be almost no white people there, much less gays. So we got totally dressed up, got the most ridiculous bouquet we could find. And we went there and people were they were like, where are you guys from? And we had a sign that Jack made in our motel room the night before uh, George Floyd forever in our hearts. Everybody wanted to come up and take a picture. People were asking where we were from. Uh, We said, you know, Portsmouth, it's just four hours drive. Where else would we be today? And even the local newspaper said, so why did you guys come? And we said, well, we're gay. And we know what it's like to get abused and beaten up and for nobody to care about it. So we came here to show solidarity and show unity. And um, and uh, we wouldn't be anywhere else. And uh, it ended up making the local paper. And then it got picked up in The Guardian in England. Yeah. And it was like that was our gay pride this summer was was being out at George Floyd's funeral. Uh, that's yes. lovely. That's amazing. But then, um, and they were, everyone was, we were so overdressed. It was like 100 degrees. Um but it was a really moving experience. And then we got home and the very next week we were going for last call at this little bar by the Confederate monument around the corner from our house. And there was about a half a dozen black activists there gathering. And we said, what's going on? They said, well, the virtual city council meeting just ended. And they said that um, they're gonna not move the monument even though they had voted to, they're gonna kick it down the, the street. And so we have to cover it up tonight. There's these four Confederate soldiers and a big obelisk in the middle, which was the whipping post for slaves and uh, in our town. And so we said, well, how can we help? And they said, we don't know. We just got here. It's all unfolding right now. And the police turned up, about a, uh, half a dozen cops. And they were like, you can't climb on it and you can't deface it. And so Jack said, that's great. We live around the corner. We have a ladder and we have uh, trash bags and you know, stuff. We'll cover it up and we won't even have to climb on it. And so they uh, we came back with the ladder and the NAACP guys were like, yes, yes. And do you have any sheets? Not white ones um, <laughs> to cover the whole thing up. You know, I, w- I was very proud to be you know, first up the ladder. The guy from the NAACP was thinking, God, I, I you know, I, he had to lead the crowd and do press and was afraid of being arrested. He ended up being arrested the next day. So um, they call me Ladder Dan now because I was first up the ladder to cover the first monument. And Jack was on. That's great. And Jack was doing a chalk outline of George Floyd on the street. And we couldn't even see our faces because we all had masks on. We didn't know each other's names. Uh, We covered up the whole monument. The police didn't arrest us, although they they kept trying to. But we said we obeyed your rules. Um, We uh, uh, it was all over the news. Um, the next day, somebody had uncovered it, and the very guy that we were with the night before covered it back up, and then he was arrested. And the NAACP, uh-huh. he was the NAACP leader, and then a melee ensued. Crowds came out. They uh, climbed on the monument, whacked the heads off, uh, painted it yellow and red, and it ended up on the front page of the New York Times because we just, when the, you know, the, the, the police arresting those NAACP guys for doing the same things white people had done the night before and didn't right. get arrested yeah. for it. Yeah, of um, course. And so we became friends with all of them and our ladder was impounded and 
They invite us to their Juneteenth news conference. They include us in all of their activities. And we get stoned with them, too. It's awesome. We've become really, <laughs> really good friends. Um, and uh, now Onyx is one of our is one of our very best friends. And she's mentoring a girl who is a real animal lover, uh, you know, her, whose father is serving a hard time. So she's introduced me to her now. And so she's coming to help out with PETA stuff. And now we just have this whole new circle of friends in Portsmouth. And it was interesting because we posted about it so much on social media and some of our moral hillbilly white friends were very upset that we took such an active role in uh, uh, taking the monument down. And we set up, you have your, you you can have your feelings about that's Mm -hmm. fine. It doesn't mean we're not friends. And some of them were very upset and, you know, no friendships were broken. We let them say what they had to say. And um, it was very, very big learning experience for us. So it's been an interesting summer. Thinking about, you know, the whole parallel between Peter and Black Lives Matter about uh, movements gaining traction, you know, do you, when you see things like the murder of Breonna Taylor kind of losing momentum and, you know, disappearing off people's feeds and things like, does your mind spark into what you want to do and how you could get attention for it? And because I feel like you think in those ways. Definitely. I mean, and I'm involved in a lot of groups. Uh, I've always been involved in gay rights groups. Um, and now I'm increasingly involved in uh, civil rights groups. I just before this, um, bef- just before we all joined, I had a call with Onyx, who's the VP of the NAACP in Portsmouth. And we are now developing a project to address food deserts. There's very little for people to eat, and especially in black communities where there's no grocery store. There's just like a, a dollar general, no fresh vegetables, mm-hmm. no fresh fruits. And so PETA is going to join with the NAACP in Portsmouth to have an oasis, a veggie oasis in a food desert wow. uh, as an example of how uh, and uh, urging stores to open up, you know, uh, in these places where they need to. It, so a food desert means a place that just has no shops, has no it's shops. Not, and there's right. the kids get the worst nutrition because all you can get is crisps uh, or candy right, or yeah. things like mm, that. Yeah. And it's a big problem in America of, of food deserts in Baltimore and a lot of places. In and poor so, areas. In poor areas, yeah. And so we thought, what a great way to promote vegan eating is by having these uh, food oases pop-ups that we work with local activists on so that they are exposed to uh, a veggie message through something that's also addressing a community problem. And then as part of it, we're also going to be doing you know, petitions to stores to open up in these areas. And so and I you love get, you encourage people to grow their own vegetables too. In that yeah, moment. yeah, yeah. It's incredible. That's great. Incredible. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. So there's Virginia. Are you in Virginia? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then there's West Virginia. Why is it not called East Virginia? Well, see, West Virginia was just Virginia until the Civil War. And Virginia seceded. And West Virginia, the West Virginia part of the state, which is in the mountains, decided to stick with the Union. And they didn't secede. So since the Civil War, there's been Virginia and West Virginia. I'm at the southern part of Virginia, right above North Carolina. Uh, and it is called the Tidewater area. And it is right where the British entered just down here back in 1606, like 1607, I think, uh, when they ended up in Jamestown and um, they got scurvy and the, they didn't know how to manage with the uh, brackish water. And they pretty much all the colonists died, but they kept on coming back. <laughs> yeah, God. So you're right at the vet <laughs> entry port for, for the, the British. Oh, yes. All the street names are British around here. You know, Dinwiddie Street and, and all that stuff. So Hilarious. And also you do uh, still uh, enjoy a sailor, don't you, uh, around at your house some nights? With- <laughs> yes, yes, quite indeed. It's, we're quite a maritime hub here. We have uh, not only the Navy, it's the biggest Navy base in the world, but there are people that work on ships from all over, from Canada, from Australia, from all across Europe. And they're usually here for uh, two weeks or two months. And they want to have fun before they have to go back out on the seas. And somehow... They always find me and Jack at one of the bars and then our house becomes <laughs> the after hours hub until they all go back out to sea. And sometimes we're counting the minutes um, and, other, and then we miss them immediately. Uh, so, <laughs> Wow. What does one of those parties look like? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> uh, Can I just say what I've always thought really? it looks like? I've always thought, have you ever been to Disneyland and you know Pirates of the Caribbean when you go on that ride and yes. there's a house and the pirates are chasing ladies and people in and out and they're on a sort of a track going in and out and in and out. That's what I think your house is like. Well, it's so funny that you should bring up that uh, visual because that's exactly what happens. <laughs> we have a secret back staircase that a lot of people don't know about. And if there's guys that are kind of like, a, I mean, on, on the make for a certain girl, the girls will go up the back staircase and then the guys will wonder where they went. Then they'll find it. And we see them going around and around and around. And I'm not hinting that there's any shady activity at our house, but, you know, the people are randy yeah, at three in the needs morning. Not, needs um, must be met. But it's um, what's nice is that, you know, Jack and I are vegan and uh, we have these dinner parties where they come over and they've uh, it's filled with ex-cons, tattoo artists, their stripper girlfriends, uh, nurses from the Navy hospital around the corner. We um, have a lot of freshly discharged soldiers who are suffering PTSD uh, at the Naval Hospital around the corner. We welcome them into our parties. It's so great to see them uh, shake it off a bit and smile and dance. Um, a lot of dancing at our house, and dancing is a kind of lost, forgotten art yes. in the last yes. uh, decade. So we uh, we keep the party rolling here, and it's all kind of captured in my uh, new memoir, Like Crazy, which is set entirely in the house. Oh, that was a good segue. That was a good segue. Yes. <laughs> so you, it's sort of part brothel. Oh my, there we go. It's holding it up now. I love it. Part brothel, part therapy center. Yeah. And it's interesting because uh, my husband, Jack, he's uh, a year younger than I, but has four children from a previous sexuality. And his oldest son. <laughs> I've never heard that said, saying oh, before. Oh, feel free to steal it. Um, his oldest, his <laughs> oldest son, Dylan, who uh, separated from his junior high school sweetheart. They got married. 
he moved in with us uh, for 10 months and he had never really been in the nightlife scene. And uh, we are out all the time. And it was really, really funny because when you have a, a son who moves in with their parents, usually it's, oh, they've got to live by their rules. And, oh, God, they've got to go <laughs> yes. through all that again. We found ourselves apologizing to Dylan constantly for having the noise so late. <laughs> One morning, um, I came down bleary eyed for coffee to, to come over for work. And Dylan was in the kitchen and he said, is everything OK with you and my dad? Um, and I said, yeah, why would you ask? He said, well, I noticed that he's sleeping in the record room. Uh, and so I was just wondering what was up. And I looked in the record room and I said, oh, that's not your father. I couldn't tell you who it is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I also love about that story. You have a record room, like a room to, for just where you play records. Yes. Once my mom died, wow. I, bought, I bought the house about 12 years ago. <laughs> that's a funny segue. Is once my mom died, I made a record. Well, room. the thing is that her room, uh, she was she was always, uh, you know, she was quite deaf and she was uh, quite aged. And I bought the house to look after her in her last, you know, in her final five years. And we she was always so eager to see who I might bring home from the bars. And so she would stay up and we would go in and the party was often in her room. It started in her room before we moved upstairs or out back. Uh, and so when she when she died, we thought, now let's really make it the official party room. And That's so, so nice. we stripped all the, you know, 1970s floors at, down to the 1940s, you know, tile and linoleum. And we found the original 1870 hardwood floors, which is now a dance wow. floor. Wow. Oh. We... Uh, painted the top half uh, sparkly green and uh, black and white bars. And then on the uh, wall guard, it is bright uh, green, uh, bright, bright pink with lots wow. and lots of sparkles in it. So would, have you got a disco ball? We, we have a disco ball, but it's not in that room because it has quite a low ceiling. Uh, and I knocked it off once and almost really hurt somebody. So we moved the well, disco I, ball upstairs. Because you're six foot five, well, aren't you? Well, Chris, yes, yes, yes. yes. Tall drink of water and a dirty glass, they call me around here. <laughs> so I want to know about your childhood then. Was your mom like a wild child? Was it a liberal house? Very liberal. Um, my mom grew up in orphanages and foster homes during the Great Depression around D.C. and Northern Virginia. And she was an atheist. She was, uh, you know, when we were growing up, uh, I think kids kind of knew I was gay before I did. I used to get beat up in junior high mm. school a lot. And she instantly told me that I'm a part of this really exclusive club and took me to see La Cage aux Folles when it came out in 1979, wow. the French version, brought me to a thrift shop to get uh, pumps to go to Rocky Horror when I was 14 and showed that I am a part of this world that everybody's dying to be a part of. And I just happen to be one of the lucky ones. And my poor brothers had to actually come in to her. Wow. Uh, that's despite the, that they, they weren't gay. That's incredible. That's hilarious. Come in. And was I she, was, did you learn, because one of the most, you know, amazing things about you is your sense of like inventiveness and mischief while doing so much good. And, you know, it's sort of like when I said, oh, your house sounds like part brothel, part therapy. It's almost like that's, feels like what your work is as well. Like it's half totally transgressive and then half doing so much good. Not that the two can't meet in the middle, but did, did you get that from her or from who in your family taught you that? Uh, de definitely from her. And I, I think um, the thing is, the thing that we both feel inside is that, you know, the only way to go through this, you know, 
hard, crappy life that we have to face if you have a conscience is to have a sense of humor about it, no matter what the situation. Um, even on uh, even on her deathbed, um, we had a hospice nurse who was there, and the hospice nurse said, um, uh, now, have you all discussed the inevitable? Uh, and my mom, wheezing, said, yes. Uh, when my time comes, I'm going to hold on till a Thursday because on our street, they haul away the trash on Fridays. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. But, um, that's so funny. But even and now uh, that's that's one of the closing scenes of the of the new book. But no. And, and, and she she taught me at a young age to defend animals. She uh, my mm. mom was schizophrenic. Not she wasn't diagnosed until she came to live mm. with me, um, which was a shocker. She we just always thought she was out there because of her damaged childhood growing up in you know orphanages and all that stuff. Mm. Um, but uh, it turns out she was a schizophrenic, not diagnosed until she moved in with me a, a, a year or so before she died mm. um, after a pretty spectacular breakdown. But uh, when you're schizophrenic, you have a hard time maintaining relationships with humans. Mm. You just think that they said something or they're thinking something. Um, and she never had that problem with animals. Animals were always pure beings to her who weren't dissing her, who weren't, you know, uh, uh, anything but, but, but pure and, and good and her friends. And so I learned at the youngest age, I mean, out of straight out of the womb, the intricacies of how uh, animals communicate and their sensitivities and, uh, and how they really are much more like us than they are dislike mm. us um, yeah. and, and have, you know, not not only brilliant intelligence, but, uh, you know, these, uh, empathy and, and things like that. So, um, we lived in an apartment that allowed no animals whatsoever, but my brothers and I were under strict orders to bring home any cat we saw on the streets. I saw a big cat, uh, in a bush where these kids were throwing sticks and, and rocks and, uh, went up close to see that it was a pregnant cat oh. uh, squirming around on the ground. And even though I was, a uh, you know, uh, a bit of a bashful child at that point, you know, getting beat up. I shoved them out of the way, brought the cat home. And she, that was Duchess. She had six kittens in my closet later that <sighs> night. And she would, uh, I sort of became the, the nanny to the kittens. And because I got her out of the bush and that was probably when I was about seven years old. And it just started then. Uh, I'm still a, I'm kind of like a cat lady still um, crazy cat lady. But I uh, just learned uh, at that real young age. Um, and uh, it wasn't until I was probably 13 that I finally became vegetarian. I used to go on fishing trips with my father. And um, I was always uncomfortable with it. But it's, we only saw my dad like once or twice a year because they split, uh, split up when I was about seven and he moved across the country. Right. And one day at junior high when somebody just hauled off and slugged me in the stomach and hollered faggot, I knocked over on the ground with the wind knocked out of me and I couldn't, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't. And I just looked up and there was all these faces looking down and laughing and it was just humiliating and, and horrifying. And, uh, uh, it wasn't a month after that, um, uh, that I went on another fishing trip with my dad and I had hooked some big fish. Everybody thought it would be a trophy fish. And we hauled up this big, ugly flounder, a bottom feeder that was more of a joke fish. And somebody helped haul him up onto the boat, stomped on him, yanked the uh, hook out of his mouth. And there were these two eyes on one side of the head, like flounders have, looking up and he was gasping for breath uh, and looking up. And all that were around him was a group of people looking down and laughing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, my God, 
that's me. I Only see. now I'm the bully. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I oh, burst nice. into tears and I, you know, pledged to never eat fish again. I'm tearing up about that. And um, <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, that's, you know, most people give up fish last. And because of that flounder incident, I kind of sympathized with the ugliest rubbery bottom feeder uh, and, you know, having already loved cats and kittens and that, that, that closed the loop for me. And I realized everything else in between, whether it has furs or feathers or fins uh, were, had their own lives separate from mine. And, um, you know, I learned in, uh, in English class, the definition of sadism at one point. And I was, you know, I remember telling my dad and his friends, what you're doing when you're fishing is the dictionary definition of sadism. Mm. You've got your finger on the line. You can feel the fish pull. You can, you get all excited because now this creature's racing away from you, but he can't get away. He's got a hook in his mouth and we actually get How did that go down? How'd that go down when you said that to them? They, (laughs) well, I was punk rocker at the time. So they wrote everything off to the fact that I had, you know, black hair or blue hair. This was like 1979, 1980. Um, And so I I was lucky because I had my mom uh, on the one side supporting my ethics and then I had fallen into the early punk rock scene on the other side, which was the more people hate you, the better. And people already hated me because right. I was gay. So why not, you know, go all out? Um, and I always uh, like to joke that if Facebook had been around uh, during the punk days, it would have been all about how many hates you can get, not the likes. <laughs> That's funny. But there was like a, an interesting, um, talking about that time in your life, there was a, in your first book, there was a part of a, a strand of it that I really was fascinated by because of your friendship with a sort of a, a biker guy that was um, a really, like a, a, at times a really tender, and I guess it's like, you know, two people on the outside kind of, you know, finding each other, but it kind of got dangerous, didn't it, towards the end? And it's, I, I, can you just tell us a wee bit about that? Because I, I found that so incredible. Well, I've, I've never really been, I've never really been afraid of people and people that are, are, no matter if they are look like a hell's angel or I just, you know, I kind of uh, have, uh, uh, you know, and like I mentioned earlier with the people that are suffering PTSD or bikers or ex-cons, we have ex-cons all the time at our house. Um, I just never, I was never, I always could see the good inside everybody. And it's not like I'm some, uh, you know, uh, missionary or out to change anybody, but I could always just sense the good in somebody, no matter, no matter who they were. And uh, that's kind of how I lived my life. Mm. Um, it's interesting. We had a we had a um, a dinner party not long ago, and uh, there was an ex-con, a guy that we had met at the bar, and he overheard Jack and I talking about our uh, player piano was broken. He had gotten this junky player piano for a, 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 a haunted house show that he worked on. My uh, Jack's a production designer, and it had it, it broken. And this guy overheard us at the bar saying, "I can fix that. I'm in the Navy, and or I was in the Navy, and I was an engineer. I, I can fix that." And it's last call, uh, as, you know, what do you guys say? So he came over with his friend and they had just gotten sprung from prison like f- weeks before. And he fixed our piano and we made vegan chicken Caesar salad, which he <laughs> laughed at when we first offered it. But he ended up really eating the whole bowl. Most stories you tell, Dan, sound like the beginning of a porn movie, I find. I know. Well, listen, so listen, I know. It's, so he comes, we invite him back because uh, we had an actual dinner party, not an after hours party. Uh, a few weeks later, and it was really hot out, and he had shorts on. And when he had his shorts on, you could see the swastika tattoo on his. Oh, calf. Whoa. oh my god! And we were like, 
Oh my God. And he had already told us that he used to be really anti-gay until he realized his brother was gay. And then uh, he realized that it was stupid to be anti-gay. And that's why he was really glad to become friends with us. So at the party, a friend of mine, uh, uh, a tattoo artist friend, saw it and he's like, what the fuck? Your, your friend has a, you have a white supremacist here. And I was like, oh God, who? And he you know, pointed the guy out and, and pointed out his, and there was a whole kerfuffle going on, obviously. And I said, uh, they said, we got to kick him out. I said, quite the contrary. The only way he is going to change is by being around people that have different views, but who he considers his friends. Mm. If we just kick everybody out we disagree with, we allow uh, meat eaters in this house. We allow, you know, anybody. We just, mm. we have, the only way to, to evolve in this society is to be open-minded to everyone, no matter mm. how different their mm. views are. And um, it really, like, our, our rough and tumble friends who wanted to beat him up, they stopped in their tracks and they were like, oh my God, you're right. That's, that's that you're that, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so my friend offered to, uh, he was a tattoo what artist. I offered to get rid of the tattoo for free of charge. Uh, what, like, uh, like as a, as an opening gambit to, or did he, did you, I mean, did, what was he a white supremacist? Yes, he was. What? Yeah, and, he was. Still I mean, was. He, wow. his, his beliefs were, were crumbling a little bit, but you know, he'd been in, prison for four years, something like that. And we have, we live in a very rough and tumble area, I will say. And it's not a lot of people want to live in Portsmouth. They want to live in Virginia beach. They want to live in other places, mm. but uh, we have all these beautiful historic houses. We have all these freaky individuals and um, uh, yeah. And so they all kind of come together in our house. And, uh, and I think it's important, especially in this day and age when it's so easily to write off somebody who's for Trump or somebody who is, uh, you know, offended a woman uh, two years ago or 20 years ago or two minutes ago, or uh, just, I think we've all got to lighten up a little bit and, and interact with people a little more because the more listen. Yeah. And listen and listen. I was just thinking about that, taking that ethos to your activism, you know, and that sort of inventiveness and uh, playfulness and, thinking outside like how can we get around this how can we think about this in a different way that's going to get attention and stuff and i wondered what was the first time you did something that was that kind of beautifully inventive activism that you've become so known for well one thing which is a follow-on to this this story the guy who had the tattoo parlor who used to you know be the biggest meteor and he wanted to kick the guy's ass who was who had the swastika tattoo Mm -hmm. he had a lot of taxidermy he had collected it for his tattoo parlor and it made him sick after a while. And he said, if there's ever a way we can use that. And so I said, let's bring it all up to the National Rifle Association and uh, and say there is no, you know, stop killing everything, not just people. Stop shooting animals, too. And we set up this whole taxidermy tableau outside the NRA's headquarters, which um, was in the news. And it was all these people I had met from the bar and they all drove up. We we, we uh, stayed in the same hotel room and, you know, had this great time. And I thought, these people that another porn film, sorry. <laughs> Taxi there we were. Uh, then it was time for a shower, and it was it, it was just wonderful. But I I think um you know I, if there's one reason I'm a successful activist is that I instantly see what I have in common with somebody rather than their differences. Wow. Um, mm. And I think that if you just have that as your the way you are in life, you just have much smoother sailing and. You know, when you're an activist like me, that allows you to meet with really right wing conservative, uh, arch conservatives, 
uh, as well as, you know, uh, punk rockers or ex-cons or strippers, you know, and, and everybody, everybody, you know, it's like RuPaul says, we're, we're all in drag. You're born naked and whatever you put on is drag. Mm. And I, I believe that's true with men and women. And, and so it's great to see all the, the freaky ass drags that come through our life in Portsmouth. <laughs> I would define Dan as an absolute rip-roaring laugh of a human. Great first part. That's the end of part one. Part two is available now in your feed. Head over there, click play, crack open a cup of tea, have a listen. Part two's great too. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Powered by Spirit Studios.